I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit RG help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together, We're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, three-time Super Bowl champ. You see him now on NBC Sports Boston, including The Breakdown, which airs on Monday nights, along with Phil Perry. You also hear him on 98.5 The Sports Hub. It is Ted Johnson. Ted, what's going on, man? We finally made it to football season. We have actual football to talk about. Yeah, I love it, bud. And and uh, and we got some, you know, some I think some decent, uh, you know, talking points to to get to talk to uh, talk about today too, which is great. So yeah, very thrilled. Football's back. It's just. Our our bio rhythms, I'm sure you're similar to mine. It, it just um, it's a it's a uh, a little you know juice for the body to have uh, football back. So I'm pumped. Well, before we get into the Patriots, obviously big news in the division last night. I'm getting ready to watch Monday Night Football. Four games into it, Aaron Rodgers goes down. It doesn't look good. We get the news today from Adam Schefter, and the Jets just tweeted out as well that it's a torn Achilles. He's done for the season, which obviously is massive for the Patriots who play them twice but man you just think about it Ted this was the most hyped up team in the NFL this season it's a backbreaker for the league as well I mean they were going to be featured on a lot of games this season in terms of prime time the four o'clock window and all that different type of stuff and I've never really been a fan of Aaron Rodgers but I thought it was good for football that he was in New York and I I do truly feel bad for the guy I mean you would think that and look maybe he tries to make his way back but coming back from that type of injury in Achilles at the age of 40, it just feels like maybe his career is done. Yeah, I had the same feeling, very same feeling. And Brian, I don't know, it, it, it was eerily familiar in the sense that it kind of uh, took me back to 2008, you know, when, when Tom blew out his knee uh, in, in yeah. week one against the Chiefs, where it was, it just, man, it was just, you could just tell the entire NFL was like, oh, the fans of the NFL, just the NFL, because you, you, you want to see your star players out there. And I think the Jets would have been a was going to be a good story. I really do. I just thought there were uh, that defense, um, the weapons they have on offense. It it just kind of had the makings of a special season for the Jets. And now they're 
you know, you know, their chances just it kind of went to hell there. So it's uh that's a gut punch, you know, if for just a football fan, like you said, Brian, I'm yeah. a football fan, not the biggest fan of Aaron Rodgers, but I just felt my heart went out to the players on that team because they're hungry guys and they they want to win and they haven't won in that in that team for a long time. And this guy gave them the best <laughs> chance. So my heart goes out. I never and I said I was texting with my son last night and I just texted, I said, Charlie. Man, my heart, I never thought I'd say this, but my heart goes out to the Jets fans just to watch them in that stadium to see him go down. I can't <laughs> yeah. imagine that feeling. Yeah, like, I don't feel bad for the Jets when they continually draft bad quarterbacks like Zach Wilson. I don't feel bad for them when they do that stuff. But a situation like that where it feels like, hey, they built up this really good roster, they finally get the quarterback, I do truly feel bad for Jets fans when it comes to that. But can we just yep. put an end to, I see Mike Tannenbaum today on ESPN talking about, hey, they should be calling up Tom Brady. We saw Brady just get honored, okay, on Sunday. By the way, Ted, and I know that he's never been, like, a big muscular guy, right? He's all about pliability. He looks very skinny. Like, he looks significantly skinnier than he was a year ago. He just got honored by the Patriots owner, Robert Kraft. It seems like him and Belichick, for whatever it's worth, that relationship seems to be in a much better spot than it was. We know Bill hates the Jets. There's no way that right after Tom retires, he... For the second time, he's going to come out of retirement and go to the Jets. Like, this pipe dream is just ridiculous from my perspective that this is the guy that everybody's mentioning today, like, all over the talking head shows. Brady's playing basketball with his son this morning. Yeah. Yeah, that's out. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, what you're grasping at straws. He's done. He, you know, it's – there's no way he's coming back. He's just going to be a hit to his brand. You know, people would – the eye rolling. Yeah. It, wouldn't, it, it doesn't make any sense for where – uh, uh, you know, his trajectory is is heading towards, you know, all his post-career type endeavors. And so going to the Jets, that makes zero sense. Tom, here's the thing. You know, you can't just – you want to go put plug Tom in somewhere. He's a – it wouldn't work. You, you got to have Tom – for Tom to right. be Tom, he has to be there all the time repping and getting comfortable with his teammates for him to be the player he wants to be. He can't – you can't just drop him in there and think, He's going to be uh, the old Tom Brady in his mind. Is our once you once you get a little taste of retirement, ooh, it's like I'm good. I'm, I'm I like this uh, not having to be accountable or held responsible or have to be on time for this or that. So it's uh, it's once you've already kind of gotten a taste of retirement, you're you're not going back. Yeah, and with Brady, unlike Peyton Manning at the end of the, his career, we saw him suck. Like Peyton sucked in '15, the year that they won the Super Bowl. He was benched for Brock Osweiler. Okay, and. Brady, even though the Bucs weren't great last year, he still threw for north of 4,600 yards. He was still really good on a bad team last season. So I think that should be important to him, right? Like, there's a risk to your point. He never worked with any of these receivers. He'd be jumping into it after the first week of the season. There's a chance that he could suck, especially considering he wasn't training for football all offseason. That's a great point. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll use it, uh, you know, I'll use my own personal experience to, to kind of uh, piggyback off of what you're saying is my last year was in my 10th year uh, was one of my best seasons as, as a pro. And I retired the first day of training camp going into my, what would have been my 11th year. And I knew I wasn't going to be the same player I was previously. And there was just something, you know, call it pride. You know, a lot of guys don't care about that, but I, I, I care about how I was going to, you know, perform and, and and I didn't want my performance at that end of my career to kind of be what people remembered. So Tom's the same way, a lot of pride and there is no way you want to go out 
theoretically on top. And that's that's what I did. You know, I my last uh, you know year was uh, our third Super Bowl championship, and I had a really good year, my 10th year. And I just knew with the head stuff that physically I was going to be the same player. So I said, you know what, go out on top. Uh, not many people can do that. And so that was, a, am sure, played into Tom's decision uh, not to play this year. Yeah, unless the only caveat I would say, Ted, is if he wants to go in as a double agent and throw like a million interceptions, I'm fine with right. that. But I don't think Tom would do that, which puts them in a bad spot. I mean, you think about the available quarterbacks. Matt Ryan was brutal last year. Carson Wentz sucked last year. And you start to think about it. There's not a lot of guys you could trade for. I guess Colt McCoy's a career backup. He's out there. And then you look at like Taylor Heineke and Jacoby Brissett. Those guys, to me, Brissett's backing up Howell, who is out of his mind. Like, you're going to need a backup for that guy. I watched some of that game on Sunday. I mean, that guy's all over the place. Won't get rid of the ball. He's risking an injury. And Brissett wasn't bad last year for Cleveland. He was better than Watson was, which isn't saying much. I get it. And Heineke's backing up Ritter. In Atlanta, if I'm Atlanta, I'm not trading him. Like Desmond Ritter looked bad in that game on Sunday, and I get they don't l allow him to throw. So I really do think they need to bring in another quarterback just because it's like they legitimately gave up on Wilson, and rightfully so. You went after Aaron Rodgers, but it does feel like Zach Wilson is kind of going to be their option, which we've seen how bad he plays against the Patriots. I think Devin McCourty just picked off another one of his passes. Yeah. Dude, you know what? And, and weren't you a little bit disappointed, Brian, watching kind of how Zach came in? And look, you, you can tell he's he, he's been humble, but it was like, I don't know, you, you kind of hope to maybe see some maturing in his game. You know, just like, can we see a little bit different player now that you've been humbled, you've been knocked down a peg, you clearly, you lost your job. And you were just kind of, I think Jets fans were hoping that you'd see a little bit something different. And it was the same Zach, you know, Zach Wilson. The ball doesn't come out. He holds it. He scrambles. It's uh, it's amazing how just little progression you've seen out of him in his very short career. But still, um, you would think you would see a little bit more progression in that. At least maybe be not having the pressure uh, of being the guy that you can go out there and maybe – I don't know, develop your game a little bit better than what he was able to do just in this in this one offseason. I was hoping maybe to see a little bit different Zach Wilson. I did it. And the other quarterbacks you mentioned, the the, the this uh the, the the ship has sailed, man. There there is uh they yeah. gotta love the one they're with at this point, Brian. So it's Zach Wilson or no one else. Well, to your point about Wilson, could you imagine that if the defenses you played on in the early 2000s with the Patriots, if Brady had come in and he played the way that Russ, uh, that Zach Wilson has, where it's just complete reckless, I mean, you guys would be <laughs> infuriated. And I have to feel like those Jets defenders, they're great players. I mean, we're talking about Sauce Gardner and Quinnen Williams, like that defense is stacked. And last year, we knew that there was aggravation in the building, and rightfully so, with the way that... Zach Wilson wouldn't take care of the football. We saw it at times in that game last night as well. Hey, on the flip side of that, though, the Bills, and I know we're not supposed to overreact to one game and it's week one, but it felt like kind of a carryover. You go back to the playoff game, Josh yeah. Allen was bad, and you saw that whole situation with Diggs on the sideline. The offseason was weird. Leslie Frazier leaves in the offseason, and it really feels like to me, ever since Brian Dayball left to take the Giants head coaching job, the turnovers are up. Like, I was going through it, so... Last year, in terms of giveaways, they were 31st in the NFL at 1.7 per game. 2021, that was 11th. In 2020, it was 14th with Dayball. 
Last year with the Giants, they were second in giveaways in terms of the second fewest giveaways in the NFL. Ken Dorsey is sort of more like a friend of Josh Allen. Like, that's his guy. We heard that's the part of the reason they kept him there. It does feel like this Buffalo team that it felt like for a three-year period there, they were one of the most talented teams in the NFL. It feels like they're vulnerable right now. And you you hit it. It's Brian Dayball. That's the big difference. You know, you know, Josh Allen, he's this wild stallion. You know, he's just this he's <laughs> just a thoroughbred. I mean, he physically he's so gifted, but he's just the way he plays, he he's sometimes you you gotta reel him in and you gotta you gotta you gotta help him keep himself under control. And Brian Dable did that. You know, they Brian Dable, you know, they they ran the ball. He made running the ball a little bit more of a priority when the, he was there. So it took more pressure off of him. There was a little bit more of a kind of a, a dink and dunk type offense to get his confidence up. I think he, he was completion percentage last night was was really high when he when he would just keep the ball, you know, throw the ball uh, within ten yards. Um, and but too many times it's. Throw it downfield, throw it downfield, sling it downfield, as, as opposed to just methodically working your way down and doing the old traditional kind of give it what the defense uh, gives, take what the defense gives you. That type of mentality left when Dayball went to the Giants. And so it's the biggest, I think, reason uh, you've seen a little bit of a drop off in Josh Allen's play. And it's it's uh, it's a little bit alarming because you think Josh would kind of uh, you know just himself being uh, in the league as long as he have would understand uh, ball security how important it is but um, you know I mean a couple of those deep throws okay you're like all right those are you know those are those are just you know uh, punts right there but when you see it happening multiple times that's uh, you, you, something something is awry there I think we were all kind of thinking that. Before the season started with the off-field stuff with Stephon Diggs and Josh Allen, you know, some of the, you know, just some of the stories we heard and you thought, well, okay, maybe they have figured it out. They have not figured it out. And it uh, might be something that perpetuates all season long. And, you know, if you're the Patriots and you're watching that game last night, you're like, oh, Aaron Rodgers tears his Achilles. Uh, Josh Allen is the same Josh Allen. Um, if you're a Patriots fan, uh, believe it or not, that's going to give you hope uh, because a lot of, you know, people, smart people, and I think people accurately are predicting the Patriots' season to not go so great, but this gives them a little bit more life seeing those two teams in the division play the way they did. Yeah, and I think that's sort of what is aggravating now about Sunday's game because there were a lot of positives to take away from a Patriots perspective, but you start to think about how they lost that game. First drive of the game for the Eagles, you have Dietrich Wise neutral zone infraction, which had nothing to do with the play whatsoever. It's just a mistake that... For so long, we didn't see the Patriots make. And that's a botched snap where now you extend the drive for the Eagles because if not, they're really pushed back in their own territory. You're starting the game with really good field position. And then the next drive, it feels like, whoa, you got something going with Mac and Bill O'Brien and Mac ends up throwing an interception, the pick six that was sort of behind Kendrick Bourne. It was a bad throw. And then the next possession, you have the Ezekiel Elliott fumble and that makes the game 16 to nothing. And then they come back, they fight back. There's all those positive signs that we'll get into. But it just sort of felt like, man, like this is what the Patriots used to not do, right? Because it feels like now they finally got something. They got a formula that could work this season. But those mistakes early, Ted, I mean, this is the defending NFC champs. You just can't go down 16 to nothing like a team against a team like that. Man, you know what? I, I'd be curious to know. And I, I need uh, I need my own research assistant. That would be awesome if I could. Uh, if anybody out there wants to be my research assistant, but I would be curious to know what the 
what the Patriots in quarters one and three are versus quarters two and four last year, um, they were terrible to start games and they were terrible to start second halves. Uh, you know, it's like they, they you know, they, they would spot teams just like they did with the Eagles uh, early points and, and then fight their way back and then get off to a slow start in the third quarter and then fight their way back in the fourth quarter. It, this is a very familiar feeling that I had in week one. So you can sit there and say, look, the defense looks pretty good. Wow. I mean, you know, I think they might have perhaps potentially a top five defense. Um, the offense looks better operationally uh, than we than we saw last year. But you can't – this team, it just feels like recently, even though you reference the old Patriots, this isn't the old Patriots anymore. It hasn't been for the last few years since Brady left. Um, and so what we're seeing now is more the norm, just getting off to slow starts, getting off to slow starts in the second half um, is killing this team. And so, you know, you, you, a lot of these games, I do post game for on NBC Sports Boston, a lot of these games, you're like kind of like you, – you, you, you go – some of these games, it's like there's the Patriots just shoot themselves in the foot, but then they fight their way back, but they don't, they can't win at the end. And so you sit there and you're left going, well, yeah, it was a valiant effort to get back in the game, but they just really caused problems for themselves early. And it's the same old story um, that we've been kind of dealing with, I think, in the last few years, but even particularly off of last year's uh, problems. So they got to, you know what? They got to figure out the start of these games. They got to get off to better starts in the first quarter and to start the second half. Those those two quarters, the first and the third quarter, have been a problem for this team in recent years. Yeah, especially to your point on the first quarter. I just looked it up when you were talking there. It was they were 30th in points per game in the first quarter last year. And I felt like last year the issue was a lot to do with the play caller, right? Like they those are your scripted plays. You didn't have a good game plan. And I actually did feel like Bill O'Brien out of the gate, like they were moving the ball. It felt like they had a good game plan. Unfortunately, you just had those critical turnovers. So speaking of Bill O'Brien, we saw, and I know you talked about it on your show on NBC Sports Boss, and a bunch of bunch formations. We saw 21 personnel with Zeke and Ramondre. We even saw some 13 personnel with three tight ends, which I did not expect that. They were three of five in the red zone, Ted. Six in last year, so 60%. Last year, they were at 42.2%, dead last in the NFL. And if you look at that 60%, only nine teams were 60% or better last season. Like, So I look at that and I say, okay, this is really positive stuff from an offensive perspective. What to you jumped out in terms of what Bill O'Brien did with this group, where you came into the game, you're thinking, wait, you're down two guards. The Patriots are in real trouble. What did Bill O'Brien do to give this team an advantage where they were the superior offense in the game despite losing? Yeah. Well, you know what Bill O'Brien said is, you know, he, uh, this number 84 that uh, you guys put in your doghouse last year, <laughs> and you basically sent to, you know, uh, you know, figuratively speaking to Siberia and it did, you know, whatever. You just didn't want to highlight them in your offense. He he realized that, uh, you know, Kendrick Bourne can be an important part of this offense. And so uh, those two touchdown passes to Kendrick Bourne, they, they weren't high red zone. They were in the red zone. Uh, those were great uh, plays. I mean, they, the Patriots sucked in the red zone and in the high red zone last year. I mean, they were awful. Um, but Bill O'Brien did a great job of getting Kendrick Bourne involved. Just get the ball to Kendrick Bourne, and he will make good things happen. So that was the first thing. Um he did a great job of getting just the ball out fast. You know, they, Mac had to get the ball out fast against that defensive line. That you know, only getting sacked twice 
is really impressive against that D-line when you consider you had two rookies playing guards. Um, and there was, I'll be honest, there was a lot of times when Mac was getting hit. I think there were seven quarterback hits, 20 quarterback pressures. So they were so close. So here that, that game told me that, hey, you, you know, you were able to get the ball out fast against that defense, um, which was huge because you just know how good that defensive line is. You would have got your quarterback killed if you didn't. But they got to get better, too. I mean, they have to – if they're not – every game isn't going to be – the ball's not going to come out as fast as it did. Um, and so they're going to have to get that a little bit more buttoned up. But still, regardless, that was a great job of game planning, getting the ball out fast. The one thing that was dis uh, disappointing is that the run game didn't get going, and play yeah. action should be a huge part of this offense with the RPOs and just all play action stuff. But you got to run the ball. So that was one of the more disappointing things. But just from an overall operational standpoint, um, you know, you saw Bill O'Brien make adjustments in the second quarter. I thought they did a great job of going to those bunch formations to really kind of confuse them on their man-to-man -man stuff. And then they also did a lot of empty, which makes it so much simpler for the reads for the quarterback, wide receivers, and the offensive line when you do that. Um, and so it, what the the, uh, the Eagles never blitz out of empty formation. That's what makes the Patriots really – if you want to run empty against the Patriots, they have blitz packages for you. Most teams don't like the blitz. When you go empty, they just go, all right, let's, let's – they're in empty. Let's just play zone and rush for – the Patriots like to blitz. Um, and, and, and the Eagles didn't take advantage of the Patriots going in empty as much as they did. Uh, they kept rushing four, and so it gave – when you have only rushed four in an empty set, you have five guys to block four. And Mac Jones has all day long back there uh, more time than than normal to uh, kind of survey the field and make plays. So Bill O'Brien did a great job of adjusting to the bunch formations versus their man and running a lot of empty to make it more simpler uh, for the offense and then negate the uh, defensive line of the Eagles. Well, to your point about the empty formations, too, that's coaching, right? Where he knows, hey, if we go empty, they're not going to blitz. Bill O'Brien's taking advantage of something that the opponent does, a really good yep. defensive front and good defensive line. Well, you can win that way. You can have success. I mean, that's something that we weren't seeing last year in terms of the game planning. And to your point about the blitz, they didn't blitz that much in the game. But Mac, when they actually did blitz, he was 7 of 10 for 76 yards. So that was tied for 7th in the NFL this week. Last year, you go to Mac against the Blitz. He was at 53.9%, which was wow. 40th out of 42 qualifiers. Wow. So Great that's coaching. Stat. Yeah, Great isn't that coaching? Stat, yes, yes. It's, you have Blitz beaters now, right? Like Mac yeah. knows where the ball is going. And I felt like last year, Ted, correct me if I'm wrong, it felt like every time Mac saw a Blitz, it was almost like, okay, I'm going to throw another go ball because we don't have answers to this, right? Like there was no easy buttons for Mac to press in the offense. So I was very encouraged by the blitz stuff. And then secondarily, you talk about getting the ball out quickly and you look at it. 55.2% of Mac's dropbacks came with less than two and a half seconds. That was, and he was 23 of 32, 71.9%, which is a really good number. And he was only pressured on 31% of his dropbacks. This is via pro football focus, wow. which was 17th. So they weren't getting after Mac. He was getting rid of the ball quickly, and it resulted in what looked like Mac really at points during this game got into a rhythm, and I think that's what Mac is good at is when he plays in rhythm, he can get streaky. We get there's some, in terms of the ceiling, he doesn't have the biggest arm and all that. Like, there's certain throws where you're saying, oh, you'd like that to be, you'd like some more velocity on that throw, but 
I felt like he was coached up really well in this game, and I felt like the number one thing I took away from this is Bill O'Brien is going to be really good for Mac, and he's going to be really good for this team last year. And I think a lot of these numbers, Mac deserves credit for it, but I also think the main guy that deserves credit is Bill O'Brien. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, you know, Mac, you, 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 he's, Mac needs his own coach who it's really his job is just to, 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 to get into Mac's brain and to work with him and to get him up to speed. And, and Bill O'Brien's the perfect guy. You know, I think Bill O'Brien comes here, Brian, with – everybody says there's a lot of pressure on Bill O'Brien. No, there's not. I don't think there's any pr- – it's all on Bill Belichick. It's all on yeah. – you know, like I, I think Bill O'Brien's going to give Mac uh, competent coaching. <laughs> He's going to give him good coaching. He's going to have him ready to go. And then it's up to Mac. I just don't think there's going to be a lot of these games where you're going to go, wow, the o- offensive coordinator really screwed that one up. I just don't I – don't, I don't see it. And so Bill O'Brien, I think, has come in here with, with really – Little pressure. I think it's more pressure to be offensive coordinator for the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide and to be the head coach yeah. of Houston Texans than it is to be the offensive coordinator for the New England Patriots. I really do. Um, but it's 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 going to be a massive difference for Mac. Um, you know, and and then I I think he's got I think he's got good good enough weapons. I really do. I think he's got good enough weapons with a more than competent offensive coordinator. Um, and so I think there's enough to kind of know. What what Mac is and what might be scary, Brian, is I don't know. You know, Mac played a good game, but that might be the best he can play. I, you know, and that's the worrisome. It, it, it's hard to get mad at Mac when you know because he had you know he's really hard on himself. I, I got the ball two times at the end and I couldn't do anything. You know, uh, Kayshawn Booty, you got to get that foot down. Sorry, yeah. you know, Kendrick Bourne, that was a tough catch, man. But it was right in the hands on that on that fourth down, or was it a long third down um, that led to a fourth down that they couldn't convert? So th- those guys got to come through in those situations. I thought Mac, for his first game under the circumstances, uh, did pretty damn good and, and, and is on the right track to having, I think, a good season. I don't know if he's ever going to be a great quarterback, Brian, but I think he can be uh, a more than serviceable good quarterback. Well, and you mentioned, too, just the booty situation. That's not a good thing to say, the booty situation. But, (laughs) (laughs) like, him playing, it just tells you, like, the guy they extended, Devontae Parker, unavailable. And he's going to be your ex-receiver. And so booty's out there, and he doesn't get the second foot down. It looks like he's still playing at LSU. But that goes back to the whole Parker thing where he's had issues with durability throughout his NFL career, hasn't played 16 games since 2019. You would have liked to have had him in the game, but this should not be a surprise to any Patriots fan or quite frankly, any Dolphins fan that knows the resume of the player. So unfortunately, you're playing a rookie and I like that Douglas is getting snaps because we know he had a really good training camp and all that, but they did not plan for Kayshawn Booty to be playing a ton of snaps in week one. And we saw that quite frankly, like there's good signs and I think that he could be a competent player going forward for this team. And I love the draft pick because there's a five-star kid with a ton of talent and all that, but he shouldn't have been out there in week one. Brian? Remember this 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 narrative that you and I, this little discussion you and I are having right now is going to be the discussion we have in weeks 10, 11, 12, 34, 15, 16, 17. It's going to be a theme throughout the entire season. It's, hey, it's hard to blame the players, you know, uh, because they were a six-round draft pick, a seventh-round draft pick, an undrafted guy. Uh, you know, th- it's, it's, it's going to be – they're going to be games. They're going to be in a lot of games this year. I think they're going to be in a lot of games. Um, I just think with the the defense 
and the competency they have on offense. Uh, it's going to be a lot of close games that I just worry, you know, I, I have them maybe winning eight games this year. If you, if you now that Aaron Rodgers hurt, maybe nine. Um, and I feel like that's their ceiling. But this team isn't ultimately, personnel-wise, good enough to finish games at the end or to be a playoff game. It's all going to go back to, hey, it's hard to get mad at the kids when they're doing the best with what God gave them and their abilities. You look, you got to look back at the people picking these guys and the per, you know, the Bill Belichick who who's drafting these guys or signing these guys in free agency. A lot of our frustrations and questions about this team is going to go back to how the team was built, the roster building, who's making the decisions, is is do they know what they're doing, and that kind of thing. It's not uh, going to be, you know, uh, it's going to be more about that than it is about the play on the field. It's going to be the ultimate reason why this this season, I think, is going to be one that's going to be fall short of the playoffs. It's because of the personnel decisions in the offseason from Bill Belichick. Yeah, and it's frustrating that I still don't understand why Parker is the guy that they love so much. I, I don't get it. He was going to be on the roster either way this year. I, I don't really understand why they extended him to Loyalty. me. And I know like Loyalty, Brian. Loyalty. It, it, whenever there's sorry to interrupt, bud, but whenever there's a question mark about a signing, you're going, what? That doesn't make sense. Look to loyalty. It's a sign of loyalty. And that's it's hard. It, you, it's hard for fans to wrap their head around that that's what's important to Bill. It's more about, hey, man, you know, you came in here, did your job, kept your mouth shut. And so I'm going to give you a word. It's not based on your production. D Devontae Parker, Brian, had his worst career. He's. If you look at his career trajectory, the last four years, he has gone downhill in catches and receptions. Like, and you're going to reward this guy with a new contract? It's because he's playing ball behind the scenes. He's a good, loyal soldier, and that's the guys that build rewards, not based on production like it used to be. Well, and it's like you look at it, too. The Kendrick Bourne guy's in the final year of his contract. He looks pretty good. Like, that's probably the guy that you would like as a Patriots fan to be extended long term, right? Because this is a guy that every time he plays, Mac has like plays a lot of snaps. Mac has one of his best games. You go to the game last year where you had the injury. I forget who got injured, but basically they had to put Kendrick Bourne out there and he had over 100 yards. I think it was against the Bengals, right? He just completely went off. We see it whenever he plays. Mac Jones plays really well, which it's great to see now that Bill O'Brien is in the building and he realizes like, yeah, I'm going to feature number 84 a lot during the season because this guy's really productive. The other receiver that was interesting to me, Juju just 42 snaps. Bourne, we mentioned he had 73. Booty, 55. So this goes back to Juju Smith-Schuster you signed. Booty was a guy that you took a flyer on in the draft. He had 55 snaps. Now, Doug Kide from the Herald reported that Booty played to play the Parker spot in the X. So they basically had three guys rotating between the slot and the Z. So you had Booty just playing the X, but you would think that if you gave this guy this type of money that you gave Juju in the offseason, maybe he could be a little bit more versatile and go out there. I do wonder if part of it is the knee situation. You look at the snaps in the slot. Henry had 29, Douglas had 25, Gesicki 22, Juju 16. So, and I know it, a lot of it has to do with personnel stuff, right? But my point is, like, Bourne, Bourne was lining up all over the place, and they were using him. Juju had just 13 snaps out wide compared to Bourne at 14, 44 for Booty. It just feels weird to me that they didn't make more use out of a guy that they gave big money to. And if the answer is, well, hey, we wanted more Bourne 
and more Douglas. That doesn't isn't that kind of an indictment on Juju Smith Schuster, who you just paid in the offseason? Seems like it. Seems like it. That's that's let's keep that's going to be something we're going to be watching. I mean, let's face it, Brian. You you've been out to practice. You cover this team on a daily basis. Have you have you heard Juju Smith Schuster's name really? Uh, mentioned much in training camp preseason. Did he have, did he have one day? Did he just you know one day where it was like, oh man, Juju just went off. He just destroyed the defense. He was just killing them downfield. He was making every catch. Not one day. Not one day did I hear Juju Smith Schuster in the practices are I was at. Did he did he really show out? Did he really separate himself from every? Not once. Never. Not once. Did I see Juju Smith-Schuster like really do anything that was exceptional in training camp and preseason? And so it was pretty much the same thing in the first game. And those numbers, numbers don't lie. Snap count does not lie. Always look at the snap counts, and that tells you what Belichick's thinking about that player. So there, that is an alarming uh, kind of uh, indicator right there is the amount of snaps that he got versus the other guys. And then you're absolutely right. When you are the highest – paid wide receiver on this team, and especially after you let Jacoby Myers go, who balled out there in week one uh, in, yeah. in, uh, in in Vegas, who I love that player for all these reasons that I think most Patriots fans do, because he came in and did his job, wasn't drafted, and balled out for four years, and you don't want to reward him. So the guy they bring in to replace him is, is Juju Smith-Schuster, who goes out there and it just doesn't do anything as far as production-wise compared to the guy they used to. Um, that's going to be something I'm going to follow all season long is, is that I don't know what – if it's – I mean, you can't uh, you can't tell me – if it's his knee, which a lot of people think it is, you know, why is he out there then? Like, I just right. – I, I can't – I don't know. If it's his it, knee, why did you sign him, right? Like because <laughs> Right? Because we knew that he had issues leading up to the Super Bowl. Like, he wasn't able to practice – and he was dealing with that in the offseason. So if the knee really was a problem, that's a bad job by, by the Patriots signing him. Like, I understood the Juju signing from the sense that, oh, he can do a lot of stuff after the catch. Okay, that gets me a little bit of excited, a little excited. But if he can't be on the field, I mean, then you have a massive issue. So they have, if they misjudge that, it's a real thing going forward. The good news for them is Bourne was really good. And the other guy that was really good is Hunter Henry, who had five receptions in this game, he led all tight ends in week one in receiving yards. He was outstanding. Yeah. Two of two uncontested catches. I mean, he made the one unbelievable catch on fourth down. And this is another guy that last year we advocated, hey, they need to use Hunter Henry more. Two years ago, he had nine touchdowns, and that was way up there among tight ends. I believe it was tied for first that season. But when you look at Hunter Henry, it feels like now I think we have an idea after week one. Hunter Henry and Kendrick Bourne are going to be the main featured players for Mac in this offense. And obviously, Ramondre, that goes without saying from the running back position. But man, Hunter Henry was really impressive to me in week one. And I wouldn't be surprised if Hunter Henry has the biggest season of his career because we know that Bill O'Brien loves using tight ends. I, I, I agree. And I, you know what? Why don't I? I just don't want to go sleep on Gasecki. Maybe I'm a bigger fan. Look, Hunter Henry, I like, I like him too. You like Gasecki? Good. Yeah. Because we're alone in there. I just think I think I think the two tight ends can both really do damage. So Hunter Henry, I was I, I, I've been a little underwhelmed uh, with him uh, in, in on this team, but that was a hell of a first game. So if he's going to play like he did in Week One the rest of the year, then I'm a big Hunter Henry fan. I but I'm also a big fan of Gasecki too. So um, I you're it's not going to be enough. 
to have Hunter Henry and Kendrick Bourne, uh, you know, being your top two guys every single week. You got to get other guys involved. Um, but look, it was it was good to see at least. I think we know that those are probably his two top favorite receivers. They probably were last year, and they probably were the year before. We know yeah. it was the year before because they both had career year. I don't know if, if Hunter Henry had a career year two years ago, but we know uh, Kendrick Bourne did. And so those are his top two guys. Those are his two buddies. So that's great. Now let's get – can we get the – if this DeMario Douglas involved? Can we get the Mike Gusecki's involved? That's going to be the next thing because I think Gusecki is going to be uh, – is a really good tight end that just needs to get utilized more. But it was great to see Hunter Henry and Kendrick Bourne, like you said, uh, play the way they did. Yeah, and to one of the things we mentioned earlier, just in terms of the play action, the RPO game, Mac had three attempts out of RPOs, which last year he had 19 total during the season. Yeah. So he had some RPOs. And then the play action – Pro Football Focus had it at eight attempts, eight dropbacks on a play action. He completed seven of them. I have to imagine that part of the reason they didn't use more play action, Ted, is you can't really have a deep play action pass game when <laughs> your offensive line, like you're sort of hiding some of the issues. So I would expect as the season goes on and they don't play some of these defensive lines like the Eagles, like maybe we even see it this week against a team like the Miami Dolphins. We see more play action. So I think that was the lack of play action was probably just who your opponent was. But I do, I do, I would like to see some R, more RPOs because we know Max good at and Bill O'Brien likes to feature. But I can't really complain about much about what Bill O'Brien did in this game. I thought he was outstanding. So I got to get your take on the defense. They pressured Hertz on forty-two point one percent of his dropbacks, according to Pro Football Focus, the eleventh highest rate in the NFL. He was three of eleven under pressure for ten yards. Okay, we're talking about sixteen dropbacks, so they were very impactful. Last year, he was only pressured on 30.1% of his dropbacks. Remember, 42.1% on Sunday. That 30.1% was 28th. So he was not facing pressure much at all last season. And Lane Johnson, who was one of the best right tackles in the NFL, he was getting cooked in this game. And if you go through it, Next Gen had Christian Barmore, third among D tackles and pass rush win rate. PFF had Barmore, Keon White, and Judon, all with four hurries. You had sacks from Judon and Uche, who kind of ran Jalen Hurts out of bounds for a loss. Gonzalez on the nice corner blitz, a huge yeah. play in the game. But yeah. this group, they're deep, they're big, they're fast. How impressed were you with this pass rush unit, which I know a lot of people thought coming into the season, it's going to be one of the best in the league. And that's a good offensive line that they yeah. got after. Like, I was really imp impressed with the way that they played defensively. Yeah, I was a little. I was the pump your brakes guys. Uh, uh, pump your brakes on the defense uh, before the season started a little bit. Um, just I got to see it against the better competition. And the defense played, especially the front seven, just like you mentioned, better than maybe I expected. Uh, I'll be totally honest with you. There was I thought it was a really good game plan in the first half. Um, I, I really liked the game plan. I thought they they did so. They did a great job, right? I mean, I think the biggest pass completion was like 23 yards or something. It was, it was, it wasn't much. So they didn't get, you know, and this that's a traditional staple in the Patriots defense is not giving up the big, uh, the big play uh, behind you, keep everything in front. But the Patriots did a good job, I think. Of you look this this offense with the limitations it has, the defense has got to take chances a, a little bit, Ryan. You can't just play conservatively all the time. And in that first half, especially, I thought they really did some really creative uh, blitzing. Uh, and that's what you're going to have. You're going to see this is going to be a very exotic defense. They're going to 
Every week, uh, I'm going to do on board games on the breakdown show on NBC Sports Boston. I'm going to come up with a play where the defense is like, oh, we haven't seen this before. They did a casino blitz, an all-out blitz. Uh, cover zero is what we call it, where it's always been used as a man-to-man on the back end. The Patriots played zone against uh, the Eagles on this one play, and Tony mm. Roma was freaking out about it and went back and diagrammed. And I'll be honest, it was something I had never seen either. And so they're going to be – this defense is going to be smart. They're going to be versatile. They're going to be uh, very good at disguising. Um, and that's that's awesome. Uh, I just – I don't know. I'll be honest. I mean, Jalen Hurts, I think, is a tad bit overrated um, a little bit in his decision-making. And so they feasted on what I think – on a quarterback that I don't think is as good as people thought, but the offensive line is. That offensive line for uh, Philly is is excellent. And they did a really good job. I wish they were a little bit more aggressive in their play calling in the second half. They kind of went in more to a prevent mode. And it became a game at halftime. At halftime, it became a game of field goals. And, you know, yeah. and, 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 and so the, the Eagles had uh, 56, 58, or no, 56, 51, and a 48-yard field goal in the second half. And you can sit there and you can say, oh, the Patriots did a great job. They did, but they were giving them a lot of underneath stuff that led to these long field goals when it became a field goal game. And so um, I was a little disappointed in some of the play calling in the second half. But the defense, the players out there, I thought they did a a, a tremendous job, uh, really a really good job. And so they might have something there. This might be a top five defense, and I might have to kind of eat my words when this thing's all (laughs) said and done. Because I said this is a good defense, perhaps a top ten defense. Um, but pumped the brakes on top five, but they they played like they were a top five defense uh, Sunday night. Well, it's funny you mentioned the Romo thing, too, because after the game, when Matthew Judon was doing his postgame press conference, somebody asked him about that. And he basically said, well, we wanted it to look one way and it looked totally different. So it is nice to see like and look, Belichick had forever to game plan for this one. Right. Like they knew who their first yeah. week opponent was. But him and Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo, there's a lot of there. There's a. A lot of smarts on that side of the football for the Patriots, and it does feel like they have at least the personnel to be able to be really creative this year. And that brings me to Christian Gonzalez, because I know the numbers are not going to look good in terms of his coverage, but I thought he really competed. Obviously, he made one of the biggest plays of the game, fourth down, breaking that ball up from that was going to Devontae Smith, even if maybe it was a little bit early. It's a nice play by Christian Gonzalez. And I mean, you were thrown in the fire. We're talking about matching up with times against A.J. Brown matching up against a guy like Devontae Smith. I really felt like he looked pretty good in week one, and this is a guy we know that the Patriots are relying on as a first-round draft pick. What did you make of his debut and the secondary in general? Because, I mean, Peppers had a huge play, too, where he forces the fumble. I I think that he's going to have a really good season. Like, I feel like the secondary is, and they didn't even have Jack Jones, who's on IR right now. So I thought that they did a pretty good job on one of the most explosive passing offenses in the NFL. Like, we know that's how the Eagles make their hay offensively, is they're explosive. Mm-hmm. No, secondary did great. And, you, and, you know, I thought Christian Gonzalez, just like you said, you know, he showed a lot of compete, right? You know, there was – you could just tell the kid, you know, it was – sure, he was – I thought his tackling was sure – was uh, was very consistent. Uh, I thought the entire secondary is tackling, and that's a staple, again, of a Patriots defense. you got to have good – Guys that can tackle on the back end. I thought I thought it was excellent. Um, I, you know, Drill Peppers playing free safety. Uh, are you kidding me? I mean, they they rotated the safeties. They were disguising and they were doing you know mixing up their 
their coverages. And you can only do that if you have guys that have been working together for a long time. And it's and I will I will compare it to my defense in 2004, which I think is was a hell of a defense, is that we've been playing together in that defense for long enough that we could start doing things that other defenses would never try because they don't trust their players to. This defense, they're gonna, they're, they trust their players because they've been playing together for a long time and they're really smart. And so they can do things that are on a week-to-week basis that is going to make even the best quarterbacks a, a little bit confused. And so um, – but you got to have, still have the talent to, to execute what they want to do. But I thought Christian Gonzalez in particular did a hell of a job. And, and then and this, the safeties in general. And I was surprised to see – Adrian Phillips and Jalen Mills, their snap counts. Uh, you're, you're, you know, I can tell you're a big snap count guy, as as am I. I was surprised to see them down, those snap counts down for those two guys, like they were, um, and still play the way the the way they did. So that's very encouraging. But particularly Christian Gonzalez, it, that's hugely, cons- uh, uh, you know, it's not as concerning anymore going in, into week two against Miami seeing how we played against uh, those top receivers, that gives you a good feeling going forward that this kid is going to be, uh, you know, your starter at uh, at corner for the next 10 years here. Yeah, and maybe that snap count thing is just Jabril Peppers is going to have a really good season. Like, we know how talented the kid was. I mean, he was up for the Heisman Trophy, and some guys, maybe it just takes them longer in their career. We know he's dealt with an injury. Maybe this is going to be like his best season, which ordinarily you don't see for a player at his age, but... Oh. Maybe he's just going to be a guy that peaks sort of late. And you're completely right about like that 4 defense where I feel like locally we appreciate it, but nationally it doesn't get nearly enough attention when we talk about some of the great defenses of all time. Like you guys want a Super Bowl like a lot of these other great defenses have in the past. And Richard Seymour was like in his prime, right? Like in his prime, dominant. You guys had Ty Law and Rodney and you and Brewski and Willie McGinnis, like and Vince Wilfork was a rookie in 2004, right? Like, you guys were loaded. And I feel like whenever we talk about that Patriots dynasty, we don't really bring up, like, how dominant that defense was. Like, locally, we appreciate it, right? Like, we all talk about the 2001 game plan. I feel like against the Rams, that game plan almost gets more attention compared to how dominant you guys were in 2004. I mean, you guys made Peyton Manning look like he never played quarterback before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's because because that group had played Peyton Manning so many times up to that point, and we just knew the game plan going in to play Peyton. Uh, we knew it. We we knew it inside inside and out. And so, when you have guys on defense that have been around for a while together, it it just makes your defense that much better. If you're constantly having to churn guys on that side and bring new guys in, particularly in a, in a uh, Bill Belichick defense, and so what makes it hard to play for Belichick on the defensive side is the game planning you do week to week. So, one, you know, one week you're a 3-4 front. The next week you're a 4-3 front. The next week you're going to be a majoring in cover two. The next week you're going to be majoring in cover one. The next week we're going to run cover two, but with a wrinkle. We're going to change it up a little bit here and there. So it's it's constantly kind of – there's a foundation for it, but there's tweaking all the time. And you got to be, you know, with guys for a long time to kind of understand – uh, what Bill is trying to do week in and week out, and you got to be really friggin' smart. Um, and, and 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 if you're playing together for a long time in the same system, then you 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 know you become a really smart defensive player. And I think that's what we're seeing from this group. 
Yeah, I mean, you got to be smart. You got to be on the same page. And I think we saw that in the second dynasty. Like, obviously, those defenses weren't as good as you guys, but they had McCourty and they had Hightower, who were kind of the guys running that defense. And hopefully it looks like they're back to that this year. Oh, so I did want to ask you quickly, Ted, about the decisions. So fourth and three from the 17, down eight with just under 10 minutes left. I personally hated it. I talked about it on my Sunday pod. Just cut it to five. There's plenty of game left there. And it felt like they were in a weird situation personnel-wise. Like, you didn't have all your best players on the field, which I thought that was strange, especially considering the importance of going for an on fourth and three. Fourth and 17 at the Eagles, 48, 217 left. And it sucks that you didn't convert anything there, but you have three timeouts and the two-minute warning. We talked about the defense. The defense was dominating the Eagles' offense. So... And look, you still get the ball back because Christian Gonzalez has a breakup there, but you get it on your own 44. If you punt the ball back, in all likelihood, you're getting much better field position, right, than where you would have got it for your final drive of the game. So both those, and actually, I was shocked that Bill actually admitted maybe he would do that one over again, going for it on fourth and 17. He actually admitted that, which I thought, ordinarily, Bill doesn't say, he just says, hey, that, now he didn't say it right after the game. He said, in fairness, he said it on Monday. But usually he said, hey, we thought it was the best decision for the team. He actually said, uh, maybe I'd like to have that one back. I didn't agree with either one of those decisions. How did you feel about those? And what do you think prompted those decisions? Like, I feel a lot of times Bill goes on the conservative side of things where I'm like, oh, I would have liked him to be more aggressive. Like the one at the end, this isn't fourth and two against Peyton Manning in 2009 when you had a bad defense and you couldn't stop him. And the game would have been over if you gave Peyton the ball back. You felt like you have a good chance to stop this Eagles defense. It just felt in terms of the situation. It was just a bizarre decision. Okay, I got I to gotta remember to say, okay, the, what you are seeing from Bill Belichick's, like his in-game management, I've seen it in the last three years, four years now. He is more conservative in his play calling than, like he's, I say conservative, he's, he, he it almost feels like he's 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 coaching not to lose badly, right? He's yeah. instead of trying to win the game, he's trying not to make it look bad, right? It's like, hey, we're gonna lose, but I don't want it to look. It almost feels like he's protecting like blowouts as opposed to trying to going out and winning the games. Oh, Ted, he's going for him fourth down. He's trying to win the game. No, that's that's irresponsible. That's stupid. And so is what is it? It's got to be one or two things. It's either you don't trust your offense because, oh, we're in their territory. I don't know when we'll get here again. Or you don't trust your defense because you don't think your defense can get the stops to get the ball back for your offense. It, it, so it's one or the other. And neither of them, I, I think, are, are, are smart ways to look at it. I, I, to me, when I see him going for it on fourth and three on your own 17, you're, you're saying you don't trust your defense. I don't know. All of those – the, the fourth down and three made no sense. Get the three points. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Get the three points. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you still got time in the game to get the ball back and then go win the game because you kicked a field goal. And so it makes no sense, uh, any of those calls. And the answers that he gives you in the in the post game, best was, uh, for the team, He, I think he – I'll be honest, Brian, I just don't think he's as sharp in the end game. I, I don't know if it's Ernie Adams leaving. Uh, he doesn't have his, his buddy in his chair telling him what to do. Uh, in those situations, I just think he's kind of having these panic attacks in these critical situations that historically he has been money at knowing what to do in games. Right. Now it is a crapshoot. 
we cannot predict what he's going to do. Um, and these, in these, you know, these calls that he's making on fourth downs in this past game were hugely, hugely head scratching kind of decisions. And if I'm a player on that team, I'm starting to lose a little bit more faith in Bill, the in-game manager. I just, you know, game plans, pre-game stuff, scouting, he's on it. In-game, I just don't think he's as sharp as he used to be, Brian. Well, and to your point, it just goes to the contrary of what was actually happening on the field. Like, if you're sitting there and you're watching that game and you're seeing how great your defense has played, and to your credit, you and your son Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo, you guys came up with an unbelievable game plan. You had one of the best offenses in the NFL flummoxed for pretty much the entirety of the game outside a couple of drives. Like, you dominated the Eagles offense. So if anything, you should be like, oh yeah, we got this. We, we, we know what Jalen Hurts is trying to do. Like, we understand. We, we've executed all day long. Let's give our defense, let's put our defense back out there. We'll get better field position. That, to me, is the most surprising part of it. Like, it would be one thing if this was a 38-30 to 30 game, right? And the Eagles were going up and down the field. And you could say, okay, I understand why you take that risk because you probably think you, you're going to lose if you give the ball back to the Eagles. But in this case, <laughs> you, you were winning on that side of the ball. So I, it's just... It's really shocking to me that he made that they made both of those decisions, especially the second one. The first yeah. one, like, okay, fourth and three, I can I, I disagree with it, but I can understand it. Fourth and seventeen, I, you got three timeouts in the two minute warning. It, it was it, shocking. It was fourth and twelve, and we were sitting there going, "What are they doing?" Yeah. <laughs> they get a procedural penalty, and you're like, "Well, now they're gonna punt, right? Oh, yeah. no, they're gonna go for it again, right?" Like, it was it, that was what was double troubling. You were like, "All right, they're going to go for it on fourth and twelve. What are they? Uh, uh, oh, okay, false start. Yeah. Fourth and seventeen. They're going to bring out the punt team, and they didn't. And I, I don't, I don't know, Ryan. I just, I, it just the, those decisions that are, and, and, and the broadcast didn't even bring it up or question it or whatever. And those are, those are things. You know, Bill used to be value add in in game management. Like he part of why you have Bill Belichick as your coach is because of the in-game management stuff. I don't know if he's value add anymore. I think there's there's a lot of games in the recent years that you can point to the coaching, the coaching yeah. decisions, the in-game decisions, the personnel decisions from the coaches in games for the reason they lose games, not the players, but the coaching. And that is more uh I, I think that highlights kind of this loss. I almost you almost put it this loss more on the coaching than you do the players. And so I'm just not so sure Bill Belichick is is worth three wins anymore. You know, I, I you wonder if he's really doing more harm than good. I know it's early in the season, and I don't mean to be that critical, but you know what my, my overall point is, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you in terms of, like, you think about it, the game planning was great. The On both sides of the ball, they had a really good game plan against this Eagles team, and they deserve a ton of credit for that. But the in-game decision-making over the past couple of years, and we saw it on Sunday in those two cases in particular, it was they those were the wrong decisions. And this isn't like second-guessing. Everybody during the game said, what are they doing? To your point, like you had a penalty on 4th and 12. So now you're going to go for it on 4th and 17. Bill O'Brien's probably like... Yeah, uh, coach, I, I don't have much for you on fourth and 17 when they know where we have to get to on the field. Brian, we used to be in meetings, okay? And I swear, Belichick was one of his favorite things to do uh, when, you know, 
Charlie Weiss was there, and he would highlight a play in a game, and we were looking at film from the day before, and he'd say somebody would have a false start or there'd be a penalty, and he'd say to Charlie in the meeting, hey, Charlie, what play do you like on fourth and 25? Is there a play that you really feel comfortable about? Just to highlight you know, how you know stupid it is to think that you have a really good play for a fourth and 25. Like, <laughs> no offensive coordinator has a good play for fourth and 17 where you feel really confident you can get it all the time. And so – it's it's shocking to me that he would he would go with a you know play on that in that situation. It's so because Bill knows hell the odds of getting a first down are so you know minute. Right. You, you have, the odds will tell you it was better to punt there, play your your, your chances on defense to get the ball back than it was to convert that fourth and down in seventeen. It's it's head scratching stuff, bro. Yeah, that Weiss story reminds me of who was the former, who was Peyton Manning's former quarterbacks coach? I think he was with Tom in Tampa too. Is it, was his last name Moore? I think it was Moore. Tom maybe Moore. I forget. Tom, Tom Moore. Okay. Yeah, That's Tom Moore. So there's like this famous story about Tom Moore. Like somebody asked him during a practice, like, hey, why don't we give the backup some reps? And he goes, well, we don't practice fucked. Like we're fucked if, <laughs> if Peyton Manning goes down. I love Same it. thing, fourth and seventeen. We don't need to practice that play because we're fucked. We're not going to convert on fourth and love seventeen. It. But hey, Ted, before we let you go, I got to ask you. So when you were at Colorado, you guys had it really rolling. Ninety-four. What was it? Eleven and one. You guys finished one. third in the country. Win the Fiesta Bowl. And there's been some tough times since there at Colorado. And now you get Coach Prime in there. I've watched both of his first games in entirety. It's become can't miss. His kid is incredible, who apparently Tom Brady's his mentor. You can see pictures of them working out together. He's got one guy playing on both sides of the ball, which is just incredible to see that at the collegiate level. I don't know if he can last the whole season doing that, but they got a bunch of receivers. They got all these transfers. I mean, you got to be a proud alum right now seeing Coach Prime. I, I can't, you can't even imagine how excited we all are. I mean, we haven't been relevant for 20 years, Colorado. And we were a proud program. You know, we, we struggled for a long time. And in the late 80s and, and early 90s, it just, everything flipped with Bill McCartney coming in there. You know, uh, they won the national championship in 90. My recruiting class, the following class of 91, were, was unbelievable. Uh, Cordell Stewart. Uh, I grad When I graduated in 94, we had 10 guys drafted in our draft wow. class. I mean, we were a wagon. Um, and we were good. Uh, off and on, all the way up until around 2002, Danny Graham's team. Um, we haven't been relevant since. And so you talk about – I mean, I watched that TCU game. Like, I haven't watched a Colorado game in its entirety in, in 20 years. And unfortunately, I was, up, I was uh, visiting uh, uh, my son's uh, campus for next year up in Middlebury this past Saturday, and I couldn't watch the game against Nebraska. But what was so great about that game was – you know, it wasn't pretty in the first half, but they got it going on the second half. They validated the TCU win by beating a team that they probably, you know, they were favored to win. They weren't when the season started. I mean, they were eight-point dogs when the season started. But then after the TCU win, they become three-point favorites. But they go out there and they handle their business against Nebraska, validating the TCU win. And so now we might have something cooking. We got Colorado State. I mean, they might be on on film excuse me, on TV every single week now. Yeah, they are. ESPN already put them on. Like, they're going there for the game. ESPN game day is going there. And that game is going to be off after whatever the 730 game is at 10. Like, it's on ESPN, and they're playing Colorado State, like, which is, you know. Are, are you you're kidding me, right? It's gonna, No, they put, they're putting on the main channel. 
Oh my. Okay. So wait, that's okay. Well, that's, so I saw it advertising and I'm locally, I'm like the Colorado, Colorado state game is yeah. going to be on TV here. Okay. So that's crazy because you know what they got after that Oregon and USC. So after the Colorado state they, game, they play Oregon, USC. Yeah. Let's see how it looks then. But yeah, I was, they've already, I mean, crimes already won us over. We're all in. Uh, and all of our, all the CU alum, it's insane how many texts I get, how excited we are about our program. We love having a good football team and getting it back to the, the old glory days and prime, although his methods are unorthodox. And I was, I, 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 I called myself skeptic, skeptically optimistic, um, uh, before the season started. And look, I'm, I'm more of a believer now, uh, because when you, when you turn over 80% of your roster, I just didn't expect to have much of a product. Uh, and I admittedly didn't see Shador, uh, you know, Sanders play at Jackson State. And when I saw him play against TCU, I was – my jaw dropped. Uh, yeah. Some of those throws, the touch, and the and then the velocity on the throws that needed velocity, the kid looks like he can be a hell of a quarterback. And so we're all grateful Colorado football is relevant again and that everyone's taking notice. So we're – we're, we're, we're having a lot of fun, a lot of us alum watching our team play. Yeah, and it's crazy, too, because it's just the start. I mean, this is year one. He completely turns over the roster. He's going to have, like, one of the best recruiting classes in the country, I would imagine, next year after what they've been able to do and how fun they are. And they've become a national brand. Like, they were the, they've been the biggest, like, really since this Aaron Rodgers story, like, that happened on Monday Night Football, they've been the biggest story in sports for two weeks. I mean, that's that's amazing. Nobody would have predicted that. Coming into the season. All right, that is Ted Johnson, three-time Super Bowl champion. You see him on NBC Sports Boston, including the breakdown. That airs on Monday nights with Phil Perry. You also see him on the post-game coverage. You hear him on 98.5, the Sports Hub as well. Ted, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Brian, anytime, bud. You take care. We'll talk to you soon, okay? Get ready to start the NFL week off right, because right now, all customers can get a no-sweat same-game parlay for Thursday Night Football. Just place a three-leg same-game parlay on this week's game between the Eagles and the Vikings, and you'll get bonus bets back if you don't win. So how about this one? I like this. This is plus 425. Eagles on the money line. Justin Jefferson, 80 receiving yards. A.J. Brown, 60 receiving yards. And Jalen Hurts, anytime touchdown score. So that's for plus 425. I like Jalen Hurts to have a rushing touchdown in this game. NFL same-game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payday. Build your own or choose from one of the popular SGPs pre-built for you in FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. Visit FanDuel.com Pike so you don't miss out on your chance to get a no-sweat same-game parlay on America's number one sportsbook. FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21-plus and present in select states. Refund issued as is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, 
all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, great stuff there from Ted Johnson. Always enjoy chatting football with Ted. And it was an exciting week one game, some issues. And I agree with him in terms of the decision-making. I talked about it on the pod Sunday, just the fourth and 17. <laughs> Especially Ted brings up a great point after the penalty. Made no sense whatsoever. But the Bourne thing was awesome to see that they were using him. He was incredible in this game. And I'm really impressed with the defense as well. So as I said on Sunday, I'm feeling optimistic about this Patriots team and Let's be real about it. As harsh as it is to say, they caught some breaks when you talk about Aaron Rodgers now done for the season, which that's two of your games against the New York Jets. You don't play Rodgers at all when you thought, okay, Rodgers comes into the division, can sort of, and I was never super high on the Jets, but we can all acknowledge that defense is legitimate. And the other thing that came out of the Monday night football game is, man, there's something up with the Bills. We talked about it with Ted. That's not the same team that we saw two years ago or three years ago. There looks like there's something off with that team. The team that there looks like there's nothing off with is the Miami Dolphins, and that's who the Patriots, of course, play on Sunday Night Football. We'll do more on the Dolphins on the Thursday pod, but just some early observations with this Patriots-Dolphins game coming up. The Dolphins against the Chargers, they finished with 30 first downs. Last year, the Chiefs led the league at 23.8, so six more than last year's leader. Little metric man breakdown of the Dolphins offense for you. 536 yards of total offense. The Chiefs led the league at 413.6, so 122.4 yards more than the league's leading offense last year. Tua threw for 466 yards. Pat Mahomes led the league at 308.8, so Tua was more than 157 yards more than Mahomes. Then you look at his yards per attempt, 10.4. He led the league last year at 8.9, so a yard and a half higher than he was last year when he led the NFL. He had a 110.0 passer rating. He led the league last year at 105.5, so four and a half points better than that. It was just so easy for Tua and this Dolphins offense. If you look at his air yards per attempt, they were at 11.6, the second deepest in the NFL. Yet his time to throw via next gen was at 2.53. That was fifth in week one. So he was fifth in time to throw, yet he was second in terms of intended air yards per attempt. They schemed it up. And if you look at it, and we mentioned this, like, could they replicate this? I mentioned this on a pod earlier during the summer when I was talking about the Dolphins. Could they replicate this? Can he really be top five in air yards per attempt in time to throw? Because it doesn't compute. If you just look at the other guys in week one that were top five in time to throw, it was Dak, Trevor Lawrence, Baker Mayfield, and Mac Jones. So Dak was at 6.4 intended air yards per attempt. That was 19th. Lawrence was at 6.7. That was 18th. Mac was at 7.4 intended air yards per attempt. That was 13th. And Baker was at 7.5, which was 12th. So none of those guys were close to Tua, who was at 11.6 in terms of intended air yards, and he was second. The best out of these guys in terms of intended air yards outside of Tua was 12th with Baker. So these two things don't ordinarily match up. 
And then if you look at the guys that were top five with Tua in terms of those intended air yards per attempt, Carr was first at 12.4, Tua, as we mentioned, second, Watson was at third with 11 intended air yards per attempt, Stafford was fourth at 10.9, Jordan Love was fifth at 10 intended air yards per attempt. If you look at those guys in terms of their time to throw, Stafford 2.7515th, Love 2.8118th, Carr 2.8619th, Watson 3.2128th, Tua was 2.53 at fifth. So a lot of these guys are in heavy play action offenses, right? And they're throwing the ball down the field. That's why the intended air yards are so up there. Tua is getting rid of the ball quickly and he's throwing the ball down the field. Like it's remarkable that he can be in the top five in both categories. It's just crazy to see. I didn't think they were going to be able to duplicate this again after what we saw last year. But the offense, and I get it, it's a one game sample size and all that. But a lot of these offenses across the league did not look good in week one. This looked like a better version of of what the Dolphins were running last season, and they did make some adjustments to it. And I just wonder if they're just this good and they're going to be able to scheme it up. They have the personnel. They have everything they can possibly go for. I mean, they found ways to continue to dominate NFL defenses, in this case, the Chargers, who I thought they had a dumbass game plan, by the way. J.C. Jackson is coming off a knee injury, and you have him in man coverage against Tyreek Hill. That just seems dumb. And they were doing really cool things like getting Tyreek Hill running starts like they did last year. But if you look at it, Hill was unstoppable. 11 for 215 with two touchdowns. He was just running away from guys. Waddle had a pedestrian four for 78. <laughs> like Unreal. And here's the thing. In that game for Tyreek Hill, his, his average depth of target was 15.7 yards. Only five players were north of 15.7 in terms of their A dot last year. Tutu Atwell, Devontae Parker, Van Jefferson, Gabe Davis, and DJ Chark. Those are all deep threats, and none of those guys had 50 receptions last season. So the quarterback is getting rid of the ball at a top five rate in the NFL in that game in, on Sunday against the Chargers, and he's throwing the ball down the field to this guy 15.7 in terms of the average depth of target. Like, this is insane. Like, these numbers don't compute the way that they're able to do this. So... Tyreek is a huge high usage guy and he's getting down the field so quickly. It's just, it's a very difficult matchup and it's just impossible to imagine a guy being this efficient and like the way that he's catching the ball and where he's catching the ball. It's, it's just ridiculous to look at what they did against that Chargers team. And then you still have to deal with Jalen Waddle too, right? If you're the Patriots coming up on Sunday. So when this offense is working, Tua was pressured on 30.4% of his dropbacks in that game on Sunday. That's the 18th highest rate. So not pressured a lot, right? So they did a good job protecting him. Now, the one thing is when he was pressured, he was just 7 of 14, 50%, no touchdowns, no interceptions. When he was kept clean, he was 21 of 31, 67.7%, three touchdowns. And 11.1 yards per attempt. That was tops in the NFL that week in terms of when he was kept clean. So, and this is via Pro Football Focus. So, at least there was some evidence in that game on Sunday. If you could get after Tua, right? If you mess up his initial read, if Tyreek Hill's not open, okay, then you can get home because we do know that that Miami Dolphins team does not have a good offensive line. So, that's something to look at. Now, Tua had good numbers when he was under pressure last season. He wasn't as good, of course, in that game on Sunday. But if he gets rid of the ball quickly... Tua, this is when you're in your most trouble. So this is via PFF. Under two and a half seconds, 8.8 8 .8 rather yards per attempt 
last season. Jimmy G was the only other qualifier over eight. He was at 8.8 when he got rid of the ball with less than two and a half seconds. It's just an incredible number, right? He threw 15 touchdowns, two interceptions. He had a 114.1 rating when he got rid of the ball under two and a half seconds. That was first in the NFL. So what we saw on Sunday was that he was comfortable, right? And Tyreek Hill was getting open really quickly and he was delivering the football on time. Mike McDaniel is a genius, right? And they have studs all over the place. The Tyreek Hills, right? And I never thought, and maybe you did, I never thought that Tyree Kill would be a better football player with Mike McDaniel and Tua than he was with Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes. And look, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Like, this isn't discrediting the Chiefs. But the fact that he's better away from those guys is just remarkable. So I get it. It's one game. But we had evidence with Tua in the lineup all season last year that this Dolphins offense was incredible. So here's the interesting thing to me. The Patriots defense, and we talked about this with with Ted, is coming off a big-time performance. That was impressive. You gave your team two chances late to win the game with, of course, the Peppers force fumble and the Gonzalez pass breakup. You held the Eagles to 251 yards. They were third in the NFL last year in terms of yards per game at 385.8. So they were 135 yards less than what they averaged last year. The Rams were last in the NFL last year at 280.5 yards per game. The Eagles were almost 30 yards worse than that on Sunday. So you're coming off a game where your defense dominated that offense of the Eagles. You completely outplayed them. So you're feeling good. And that team that you just played, now they do it differently, but they have two elite receivers in A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith, okay, who, if you look at it, you held Smith to just 47 yards. They both had, what, seven receptions, but you held Smith to just 47 yards. Brown had 79 yards, but it never really took, and look, the numbers are pretty good, but it never really felt like he took over the game, right? Like, A.J. Brown didn't destroy the Patriots in this game whatsoever. In fact, you would say the Patriots' defense got the better of the Eagles' offense, as we've been through. But they had a combined 126 yards. Last year, they combined for 158.4 yards per game. So they were 32.4 yards below their average. And we would consider that those two guys as one of the best pairings of the NFL. They were a huge reason that that team played in the Super Bowl last season. So Hill and Waddle are going to make their plays. We know this. Like, it's inevitable that those guys are going to make plays. But can you prevent one or both from completely going off? Like, okay, A.J. Brown had about 80 yards. He had a good game. I You'd be completely fine with that if Tyreek Hill has... 80 yards in this game, right? But can you prevent one of them from going off where I really felt like holding Devontae Smith under 50 yards, that's a major win for the Patriots. Last year in the game, the two have played. Eight for 94 for Hill. Waddle went for four for 69, okay? Andy had, remember that touchdown right before half, which has killed the Patriots. But that's 163 yards from their stars. You can't allow that to be similar when one guy's over 90 and one guy's rated 70 coming up in this game on Sunday. But for you to win this game, those guys just can't take over. They can't just completely dominate the game. You're not winning a shootout as much as I really liked, and we talked about it. I really liked the offense on Sunday. You're not winning a shootout against this team. But what an opportunity that this defense has, where we know they're deep, we know they're fast. I imagine they're feeling really good about themselves after what we saw on Sunday. You win this game, and you limit those weapons. The Patriots now become a massive story in the NFL, as does Bill Belichick, right? They would be getting back to what they did for the majority of the Belichick era where they make teams play left-handed. Like if you can, if Hill doesn't completely destroy you and say you hold Waddle in check like you held Devontae Smith in check 
Well, then we're talking about, hey, wait, they just really dominated the Eagles offense and they just held this Dolphins offense in check. This becomes a major storyline, right? And this is an issue that the Patriots have had in recent years, especially if you go back to last year. Number one options have ruined the Patriots, right? You look at Mark Andrews, 89 yards, two touchdowns in that Ravens game. Jefferson, 139 yards, one touchdown in that Vikings game. Diggs, 92 yards at a touchdown. Higgins, 128 yards at a touchdown. Diggs, 104 yards at a touchdown. Number one weapons last year own the Patriots. Can we get a vintage Bill Belichick game plan? Because I thought the game plan they had against the Eagles was outstanding. And I talked about some of the issues I had with in-game coaching. The game plan was phenomenal. It was really, really good. Can he do it again? Can he flummox a Dolphins defense? This is what I'm most intrigued about entering this game. What they do to try to stop Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell and Tua in that Dolphins offense. All right. One basketball note I wanted to get to is, so Sham Sharania reported on Monday morning that LeBron is committing to play for Team USA in the 2024 Olympics, and he's starting to recruit guys. And one of the guys he's recruiting is Jason Tatum. So he's also recruiting Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green. Okay, so before we get into the Tatum portion of this, LeBron doing this is so predictable. They could, if you look at it, right? Like you they, you look at the first game, they lose to Lithuania. Uh, Lithuania do, do the, does Team USA and say, hey, it's no big deal. You lose one game, okay? But then they lost to Germany in the semifinals. And then they went down to Canada in the bronze medal game. So the US didn't even medal. So we all realized that the U.S. didn't send its best players, right? What usually happens in these non-Olympic events, it's young and up-and-coming guys, right? So it's the Anthony Edwards of the world that's emerging as a superstar. It's Tyrese Halliburton. And then you usually get some random guys on those teams, right? The non-Olympic teams. Like, for example, the Bobby Portises of the world that played in that tournament. In 19, remember, you had a young Tatum, a young Jalen Brown, but Marcus Smart was on the team, which I love Marcus as a player, but that's a kind of a random guy to be on that team. You had Joe Harris, Derek White, who I love Derek White, you know that, but he was on the team, Brooke Lopez, right? Good players, but not guys that you would expect to be playing for the Olympic team, right? It's usually in the non-Olympic tournaments, it's young and up and coming stars and then a bunch of random dudes or a couple of random dudes, I should say. So the point being, the most likely scenario is a bunch of stars around the league like Tatum, a guy that just made back-to-back all NBA teams. And guys like Devin Booker, who's in his prime, Bam, who's great for the FIBA style because of he's a very versatile big man. Edwards and Halliburton are sure going to be carryovers for that team. Maybe you get Anthony Davis to play. Durant just loves playing in the Olympics so much, so he plays. Maybe you keep Bridges for his defense. But those guys all come together in all likelihood. And even though that Canada team is loaded and they could add Jamal Murray, they could add Andrew Wiggins as well. And we know that Germany just won. But the point being is even with those teams, usually the non-Olympic teams are more vulnerable to lose, right? The young guys are sort of earning their spot for the Olympics. Like Anthony Edwards just earned his spot for the Olympic team. Tyler uh, Tyrese Halliburton just earned his spot on the Olympic team. But the other guys like Portis is just happy to play in that tournament. He's not playing on the Olympic team. And then what happens is these studs that I just mentioned, the Tatums, the Bookers, et cetera, those guys come in and they go win the Olympics despite the competition being better. And even though the competition is as good as it's ever been, what will likely happen in the next, in the Summer Olympics is the U.S. wins again. We've seen this before. We just saw them win in 2020 after a poor performance in 19. That team I referenced in 19, they finished seventh. But 
What LeBron is doing is he's making this about him, right? He's seeing an opportunity. Remember, Coach K had the Redeem team where it got back to being Team USA basketball again after the team lost in 2004 when Larry Brown was the coach and they were playing Allen Iverson and Stephon Murray. They weren't, uh, Stephon Marbury. They weren't playing a young LeBron and a young Carmelo and a young Dwayne Wade. Instead, they were playing these veterans that made no sense together. But what LeBron is doing is he wants to have this effect. Now, we don't think there's time to panic right now, like for Team USA basketball, right? They lost a tournament. Like nobody really even cares about that thing. But LeBron, if the U.S., if he goes to the Olympics, they win. He gets credited. They restore order. And LeBron can put it out there. We wanted to prove that we were the most dominant team. And he's going to put it out there. This was so important to me to win the Olympics after what happened. We lost and all this. And LeBron will not be the best player on the team, but he will get the credit as the leader. And he will be the alpha, right? He'll be the spokesperson for the team because he's the biggest star. And Durant doesn't want to be the spokesperson. Tatum doesn't want to be the spokesperson. Curry doesn't want to be the spokesperson. It's going to be LeBron. He's going to be that guy. He's going to be, he's going to want to be perceived as this hero and this savior, even though we all know they don't need him to win. He just wants the credit. Why else is he recruiting, right? He wants the credit for recruiting these guys. Tatum was going to play anyway. Durant, as we know, the guy loves playing basketball. He was going to play anyway. And Draymond probably would have played anyway because they need his defense because we've seen they're, they need big men because these, like, Jaron Jackson can't stay on the fucking floor in that tournament, right? They fouls left and right. Walker Kessler was getting dominated whenever they played a real big man. So you get my point is Draymond would probably play because Curry's the coach and Curry's going to play because that's the one thing that's not in his resume. He doesn't have a gold medal. So Curry was going to play. All these guys were likely to play anyway, but LeBron's going to put it out there that, hey, he's LeBron's recruiting all these guys. Like there was no way that Tatum was going to play in the tournament if LeBron didn't. He was going to play. He's already basically alluded to it, right? So he just wants to be the big personality on Team USA. He wants to be the guy that is considered, hey, LeBron, look what he did. He got all the superstars together. Yeah, guess what? They're already going to fucking play. I, I, this, it's unbelievable to me. Like, he hasn't gotten enough credit in his career where he wants credit for restoring order for USA basketball. I mean, give me a break. Unbelievable, okay? Ugh. But anyway, just real quickly in terms of Tatum, I love this that he's actually going to be playing in the Olympics again, which we all knew this was going to happen anyway. And even though I criticize LeBron, which I stand by that, I mean, this, this guy's unbelievable. But anyway, I do like that Tatum's part of the group that he's going after, right? He's unequivocally right now one of the guys in the league. The other two guys getting recruited, Duran and Curry, those are the second and the third best players of LeBron's era. And I'd put Curry in front of Durant just because of his achievements. But Tatum is mentioned with these guys. That's what you want as a Celtics fan, right? Even if it is LeBron. But you have one of the guys in the league right now. You can't watch a game without seeing Tatum in that Subway commercial. He's all over the place right now. And the other thing is playing with Team USA, it made Tatum a better player. So remember this. So Tatum was on Draymond Green's podcast a couple of years ago now. And this is what he said. I I remember being out there in Vegas the first day we scrimmaged. And I remember we played the select team. They kicked our ass the first day we were out of shape. But I remember coming down on the wing. Somebody kicked me the ball. And on the Celtics, I would have just shot it. And it was like halfway I could have shot it. I just remember the KD was to the right of me, so I passed it to him. I remember he got mad at me. He was like, yo, don't look back at me. Be yourself. I need you to kill. And I was like, damn. That was the first time I was like, he wants me to hoop too. Don't look at it like it's KD. We're on the same team. Like he needs me to do me on this team. Okay. 
And so this really kind of like, obviously Tatum, his, the guy that he worshiped was Kobe, but he looked up to Durant. And this was Durant kind of telling Tatum, like, dude, you're on my level. Like, I need you to be my wingman on this team. And Tatum ended up being second on that team in scoring. Like, Durant inspired Tatum to be like, hey, you're my partner here. I don't need you to be somebody that is playing off me. I need you to be scoring too. And sort of this kind of had this confidence with Tatum going forward where you look at what happened in the 2021 playoffs. Tatum as the primary defender on Durant. Durant scored just 12 points. He was 3 of 18 from the field, 16.7%, 0 of 5 on threes. He had 12 turnovers, and you had two blocks Tatum had on Durant as well. He completely dominated. And we talked about this all the time after that series. Like, Tatum freaked out Durant. He got physical with him. He dominated him. He was unbelievable, turned him over a bunch and all that. And part of that confidence, that predatorial nature he played with in that series is a thank you to Kevin Durant for inspiring him. He basically told him to play on his level at practice, and that's what Jason Tatum did. So he felt confident going up against him and defending him. I love that about Tatum, that he always, like, this is one of my favorite things about Jason Tatum. He always wants the other team's best player. He always wants to defend that guy, and we've seen it throughout the history of the league. That's not always the case. Like, Giannis doesn't cover the best guy, and I know they blamed it on Budenholzer a lot. Like, when Giannis is going up against Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors, he didn't go on Kawhi Leonard. Like, you can tell me, oh, it's the coaching decision. Well, Giannis could say, fuck it, let me go get him. Tatum is that type of guy. He wants to cover the other team's best player. But the other thing with, so I love this, just playing in Team USA, it's a great thing for Tatum in general. But the other thing is this. If you go back to 08, of course, the original Redeem team, if you will, LeBron, Wade, and Bosh. And LeBron and Wade were kind of friends already, but they form a bond, they end up playing together, right? Like, we've seen the Team USA connections in recent history. So you want Tatum around this team. So let's just say, for the sake of this argument here, other guys on the team, the young group, Halliburton's there, Edwards is there, Booker is there, is there, Mikhail Bridges is there, and Bam's there. So you want Tatum, who in all likelihood will be coming off a deep playoff run, right? Like, it'd be shocking if the Celtics don't make a deep playoff run. I mean, in case, unless there's an injury, knock on wood. But hopefully they're coming off a championship, too. I mean, that would be really nice. Going to the Olympics, being the champion, and winning a championship in the Olympics in the same year, that'd be awesome. But anyway... What happens if things, say, go south in Phoenix this year, right? Like these older guys that we've seen, Kevin Durant's dealing with an injury or Bradley Beal's dealing with an injury. So that situation we all know could go south. Edwards, what if that situation in Minnesota becomes even more of a mess than it already is, right? Bridges is playing for a Brooklyn team that's not very good. How good is Indiana going to be? Tyrese Halliburton's a great player, but are they going to be a team that is doing anything in the playoffs? Are they even getting to the playoffs, right? And I get a lot of these guys like Edwards and Halliburton just signed max deals. But this is all about planting a seed. Like Dwayne Wade, LeBron, and Chris Bosh sort of started that dialogue. And if Embiid decides to play for Team USA, right? Like he could play for USA if he wants to. That's another guy where him and Tatum are already buddies. So let's just say a few years from now, those disgruntled stars, which we see across the league all the time. This time, you're the guy that is one of the main pieces on Team USA, like Tatum would be top three on this team in terms of scoring. And you look back and this Celtics team is going to make deep runs over the next couple of years. And this could be Tatum's opportunity to get some of these guys, these disgruntled stars to force themselves to come to the Celtics because of who Tatum has established himself as in the NBA. And we've seen it throughout the history of this league recently. And we're seeing it right now with a guy like Damian Lillard a lot of these guys force themselves to one team. 
Harden wanted to go to Brooklyn. Why? Because he wanted to play with Durant. Anthony Davis wanted to go to the Lakers. Why? Because he wanted to play with LeBron and LeBron wanted him to the whole Rich Paul aspect to all that. But you get my point. So this may seem like I'm getting ahead of myself, but the Celtics are a really, really, really well-run organization. This team is going to be competing for titles over the next few years, right? There should be no reason that Tatum wants to go anywhere. I mean, he talked about recently how Boston, this is where he grew up. Like he loves being a member of this organization. And here's the thing with Tatum, and this is sort of the Brady argument for so many years before he ultimately left, and I'm not reliving that in terms of the contract and all this, but there would be no reason for Tom to want to leave the Patriots because it was going to give him the best situation to win a championship. With Tatum here with the Celtics, there's really not a reason for him to want to go elsewhere. This is going to be his best opportunity to win an NBA championship. These other guys in other organizations, now we'll see how the Phoenix thing goes with Booker, but... Anthony Edwards, that Minnesota thing, one of the worst trades we've ever seen, trading for Rudy Gobert, right? How can anybody trust the Pacers if you're Tyrese Halliburton? I guess you just signed a max contract. The Nets have been a dumpster fire of an organization. Even when they got all these star players, they couldn't handle that situation. You can blame it all on Kyrie, but the point being it didn't work for a team like the Brooklyn Nets. So this whole Team USA thing, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not saying it means that you're getting another star soon to go along with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, and I'm not even getting into what you'd have to do money-wise. But Tatum being there for Team USA, this is a really, really good thing for the future of the Celtics organization. Now, if the Celtics were a bad organization, right, like if they were a team that was not making the playoffs, like Indiana, like Minnesota, and look, maybe those teams turn it around. Now, Minnesota makes the playoffs, but they don't do anything, and it's widely regarded as a mess of an organization. If Tatum was playing for one of those teams, like if I'm a Timberwolves fan and Anthony Edwards is the guy I'm cheering for, I'd be worried. If I'm a Pacers fan and it's Tyrese Halliburton, I'm worried. If Phoenix has injuries and they underachieve and that situation blows up, I'm worried with Devin Booker going there, right? From a Celtics perspective, you should not be worried about this. In fact, you should be encouraged by it because Tatum will be doing the recruiting, not the other way around. Okay, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 